Welcome to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast, where we focus on how authors found success, looking at strategies that have taken them to the top of the bestseller charts, as well as what they've learned from their mistakes. Because being an indie author is more than knowing the latest marketing trend. It's about being innovative and creative and learning from your mistakes. Welcome to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast. I'm Sarah Rosette. And I'm Jamie Albright. And this week on the show, we have Joe Lalo. Yes, we do. It's awesome. Yes, we talk about so many different things in this, but the theme that I think that came out in almost everything we talked about was planning and about yes. how he had learned to plan um, and outlining in his marketing, even talked about nano, how he had to learn to plan for that and how that's changed over the years. Well, and how he planned when he left his day job. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so it's really good. And we, we, so we talk about all of that and then um, his tips for writing short stories because he does that a lot. And then mm-hmm. um, he commissions a lot of art tips mm-hmm. on how to do that and yep. um, about leaving your day job. So yeah. Yeah. So lots of good stuff covered in this podcast. This week has been kind of busy. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have a couple of things I was going to mention. Not um, I actually got back to writing this week, mm-hmm. not a mm-hmm. lot of words, but I did mm-hmm. get some words down. So new book is started. So that's good. That's awesome. Yeah. And um, I had a interview I did with uh, Alessandra Torre and Tanya Kappas about mm-hmm. cozy mysteries and reader expectations. And that was a Facebook live. So I'll link to that because, oh, yeah, cool. so it was really fun. And we talked about what readers want and we, we showed our cover, you know, different cover types that are typical of cozies. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot of fun. So I'll link to that. And because it's the first week of November, mm-hmm. if anyone is interested in doing, um, I have a short, tiny, tiny mini course on how to, uh, start writing a cozy mystery. So I'll link to that as well. Yeah. So, yeah. So, cause awesome. it's nano and everybody's yeah. all, all excited. First day of November. Nano? What's that? You do nano. I have never done nano myself. And that's NaNoWriMo for anyone who doesn't understand. You basically write a book, but it's not necessarily, yeah. it's a 50,000 word first draft for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, you start on the first of November and you end on the last day of the month. And um, yeah, a lot of people have gotten their start writing their books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's way. a great, great yeah. organization and a lot, you get lots of organization uh, yeah. support from other, yes. other writers. You can connect with other writers really easily. Yeah. So if you're looking for a group of writers to write with, this would be a good way to find mm-hmm. some people. Yeah. So absolutely. I've, it kind of came in after I had started writing and I already had my, system down mm-hmm. so I haven't really yeah and to me November is always just a crazy month but or, I did hear a podcast with the guy who started uh-huh. uh, and he who started NaNoWriMo and he said that if you can write a book in November you can write a book in any month and I that thought is that true. is the truth that's <laughs> <laughs> the, the truth well um I too have gotten words on the page and um <clears throat> actually the the book that I'm sending out a chapter at a time in my newsletter. I wrote a new chapter, edited it, and got it out this week. Got some other words down. And so that's that's a good feeling because, you know, for a while I, I hadn't written. And it's kind of scary when you sit down to write again after not writing for a while. So um, I'm not doing nano, but I am kind of t- 
looking at November and thinking, how can I get the most out of November? Mm -hmm. So uh, I'll let y'all know how that goes. But yeah, that's about it. We've just, this has been kind of a crazy week around here and, you know, as per normal. (laughs) uh, Yeah, but things are good. Things are good. So we should probably get on to the interview. Really awesome. Yeah, sounds good. So here's Joe Lalo. Today, we're really excited to have Joe Lalo with us. Hi, Joe. Hello. Hi, Joe. Hi. All right, let me read your bio, and then we'll get started with the questions. Joseph Lalo was educated at NJIT, where he earned a master's degree in computer engineering. In September of 2014, he was given the opportunity to take a promotion that would eliminate his writing time or become a full-time author. He chose the books. Since then, he has written dozens of novels and novellas in genres across the science fiction and fantasy spectrum. Highlights include the international best-selling Book of Deacon series and the critically acclaimed Free Wrench series. In addition to writing, he helps run the Six Figure Authors podcast with Lindsay Broker and Andrea Pearson. Past ventures have included the Science Fiction and Fantasy Marketing Podcast and BrainLazy.com. In his spare time, he builds pointless doodads in his ridiculously over-equipped basement workshop. <laughs> That's right. So welcome. <laughs> Hello. So tell us, how did you get into writing? Um, I've been writing for a long time. I, when I was a little kid, uh, I, I, I was writing stories. I remember the, in kindergarten, we had to like write a story about the day and mm-hmm. my uh, my. I didn't know how to write, so I had to tell the teacher what story I wanted. And I oh, used the phrase, cool. the sun caught sight of a cloud. And she was like, I'm going to write, the sun saw the cloud. And I was like, that's not what I said. So, Stop editing me. Yeah, I, I, I had a relationship <laughs> with editors early on. But, like, my actual, like, writing, like, if you start the thread that continues to today, uh, in second grade, I was playing, like, little improvised games like i guess what you would call like i don't know larping now except Mm -hmm. didn't have a costume so Mm -hmm. but it was based on a video game called dragon warrior which is now called dragon quest and a bunch of my friends would just sort of make up stories that was in the set that setting and they grew out of it and i wrote down what i was coming up with and those characters mutated and then eventually i got into college and i learned to type and i uh, i typed 11 spiral bound notebooks of stuff into the computer and then i edited wow. those into three books and that was the book of deacon trilogy which is what got me started in the actual career wow that is amazing that is Thank great <laughs> well so what was your book of deacon your first big success would you consider that your first big success it was definitely my first big success although it didn't start off as a success uh because again i wrote the first three books at the same time mm-hmm. i uh i put the first one up with a terrible cover, like a terrible homemade cover and no editing. And I priced it at $10, which <laughs> that's what the traditional people were doing. So I did that. I sold one copy and mm-hmm. then I sold two more the next year after I dropped the price twice, but I had already written three. So I just, well, I'll put the other two out. They're already done. And then I made the first one free. And uh, that, that was, that was what did it. Yeah. it back then, That was about in 2011. I made the first one free and I, le- I got the idea from Brian S. Pratt who had done the same thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first, the when it went free, uh, it made like twenty five thousand downloads because there was a website back then called Pixel of Ink, which would mm-hmm. just basically report n- new free books. And by the end of the first like big sales thing, because I had a, a book following it up, I would made three thousand dollars in sales. So I used the three thousand dollars to get new covers, and then eventually to get new edits, and things started to grow from there. Yeah, but the story itself must have been compelling. I mean, you know, I think a lot of it is the story, like if you can get readers into the story, 
then later on you can fix, you know, it's better if you can do your cover and editing before, but yeah. You know. Yeah. And, and, and I also like some, because it was written all as one big chunk, uh, uh, I made a decision I probably wouldn't make today, which was that, uh, the first one ended in a ridiculous cliffhanger. Like <laughs> re- the, the, the main character is like in a cave that is flooding. And then that's the end of the book. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so you get a free book. that's 150,000 words and it ends with someone in a dire situation. <laughs> like it was mean, but I probably helped out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Readers don't like cliffhangers, but, no. but I think they do help with read through. They, <laughs> they do. do yeah. Read through going. They do. They do. Uh, what do you wish you'd known about writing in craft? Um, I wish I'd known how to properly outline at the beginning. Like I said, there was 11 spiral bound notebooks, which is a lot. And like I chopped a bunch out of that, but the, the, the first quote unquote book, which I split into three was still almost half a million words. And it took me from, I don't know, second grade until college to write it. So, uh, if I, if I had known back in the beginning, uh, that how pantsing just makes a book get longer, uh, I would have outlined better my my pacing is always better when i outline the books are shorter and nicer when i outline and they, they get written more quickly so mm-hmm. if i had learned to outline up outline up front i probably would have twice as many books by now how did you how did you learn to outline i mean did you use a specific tool or method mm, not really uh, basically like b- because originally but writing was just a hobby and i would just sit down in class and instead of doing what class wanted me to do i would write stories mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't until I, I basically did my, my third NaNoWriMo and I realized uh, that I was going to have to really, you know, I had a bigger idea than was really appropriate for NaNoWriMo. So instead of sitting there and deciding, uh, I, I usually started with, okay, this is the setting, these are the characters, and I want to end this way. And then I would pants from there. I was like, I need to have a couple of dots to connect. And so I just started like writing that. And eventually got to the point where, well, heck, if I just write a, a little thumbnail for every chapter, then every time I'm starting a chapter, I know where I'm going to go. Right. I didn't actually read any books on outlining until much, much later. Oh, but that's a great idea. That's something I could incorporate <laughs> um, at any point, at any point. So, well, yeah, that's right. You're still very much into NaNoWriMo, right? Yeah, I'm prepping for this year. Yeah, I have, so has I, your, I have written the outline, in fact. I was going to say, has your prep great. changed in any way? Or uh, the first, Like I said, the first three, I just sat down with an idea. And I had already had the idea, but I didn't have, I literally didn't put word to page or even name mm-hmm. the characters until the start. Mm-hmm. And then once I started like writing, I have a series called, um, uh, Steam, uh, it's a steampunk series called Free Wrench. And the first mm-hmm. book in that was written during NaNoWriMo. And it did well enough that I wrote the second book in the following NaNoWriMo. And because that meant that I had to continue a, a plot and I had pre-existing characters and continuity, I knew that I couldn't just sit down. Like I had to be, it would require too much re- referring back to the previous book if I wasn't prepared. So right. since I started doing books that are in pre-existing series during NaNoWriMo, I've had to really get my act together and make sure that I, I had a, a layout. Although I always go over in length. I, I say that my <laughs> outlines keep my books shorter, but they don't keep them short enough. <laughs> yeah, that happens. Your steampunk books are how long are they usually? Um, I mean, again, because the first, I think the first three were written during NaNoWriMo, so they were in the neighborhood of fifty thousand words. But I think the first one was mm-hmm. sixty-five thousand, and the second one was seventy-five thousand, and the third one was okay. ninety thousand. So, like, it keeps on getting bigger yeah. as I get more <laughs> continuity. That's true. Well, what about marketing? What do you wish you had known about marketing? I wish I had known that I was going to have to market. 
uh, <laughs> at the beginning at the beginning it was super easy um uh because you know there wasn't any really wasn't a lot of people doing free series starters for example so it, it just sort of took care of itself and then mm-hmm. i got had another couple of good launches so i just thought oh it's always going to be this easy but really uh, uh i think the main thing i wish i had known especially in the, the for that first hit was i wish i had known about mailing lists like it didn't strike me as a thing that i needed again this is 2011 there weren't a lot of like resources for how to be an author yeah. so uh i had no mailing list and obviously didn't have a sign up for that mailing list I got 25,000 hits over the course of a month and none of them had any way to know about me afterward. I think, I I don't even know if I had a website at that time. Yeah. So it was just, I I would probably have triple the mailing list I have now if I had been ready to like receive it back then. Uh, But, you know, so I missed out on that first big bump and it was, it was tricky. And yeah, and and like I say, I wish I'd known that the gravy train wasn't going to continue. The tricky thing Mm -hmm. when you're getting started, and again, when there weren't any, um, any resources is you think, oh, well, what I'm doing is the correct thing to do. And it's working because I'm doing the correct things. And I was for a lot of stuff. I was, you know, my covers were pretty darn spot on. And I was clearly, you know, putting together books that people found interesting. But uh, as I continued to diversify and increase the number of places my books were available, and I had audio books and translations and all that stuff, my income was staying pretty steady because of all that. And it should have been increasing because of all of that. <laughs> wow. So like now I know that, that like, you know, high quality advertising policy and just sort of having something in place that's both to maintenance your, to your backlist and also to push your promos. I can usually do a pretty decent launch if I plan for it. I didn't plan for this most recent one. But uh, uh, yeah, I just wish I'd, I'd gotten better at maintenance advertising uh, and known to sort of have those chops sharpened up for when things started to get more competitive. So what do you do for your well, maintenance what- advertising? Uh, not a whole lot. <laughs> I, I, uh, I have I have in the past had some pretty successful uh, uh, Amazon ads, and when I do a launch, I usually have some some Facebook pushes. But that's really about it. Early on, the only thing I would do in terms of advertising was I was particularly lucky at getting book bubs. I must have gotten seven book bubs in the first few years. Wow. Uh, so yeah, so now I always have at least two or three ads running on Amazon, and I will do periodic pushes on on book bub like the book bug pay-per-click ads. Mm-hmm. But uh, generally speaking, I am woefully under-equipped when it comes to just ongoing advertising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's harder. I mean, I just found that it's with, with more books, it's harder to advertise. I mean, it should be easier, but it, there's just so much to keep up with. And, and you have to advertise your backlist different than you advertise your new book. And yep. if your new book doesn't really lead to anywhere, then you really have to stick with your backlist. And yeah, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky. Yeah. So, um, so what assumption did you make at the beginning of your writing career? Looking back, did, they, did those assumptions turn out to be right or wrong? Uh, well, my first assumption, and the one that almost is responsible for me publishing, is that I assumed no one would read my stuff. Uh, I, <laughs> I genuinely thought, like, you know, well, you know, uh, it's okay if it's not that good because it's not like anyone's going to read it. Uh, so that one was wrong. Uh, I also thought that <laughs> traditional publishing was the only way to go. Uh, yeah. I, you, you'll note that I had said that I had uh, finished writing in college, and I graduated from college uh, in well in, tw- in 2005 and 2007 because I got a master's degree. Mm-hmm. But uh, I didn't start my publishing career until the beginning of 2010, and those that that you know three to five year gap was me trying to get an agent. And I would you know write two query letters and send them out and wait a month to be either rejected or ignored and then do it again and yeah. uh, I wasted years and years. I feel like I would have done a whole lot better <laughs> if i had uh if I had been going 
I mean, obviously, Kindle didn't come out until the year before I started. Uh, well, right. Yeah, and it didn't really explode until the year after right. I started. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't have had an easy time of it, but I would have had a better foundation uh, by the time it came along, around. I was also a terrible judge of my own capacity. Uh, I'm not a virtuoso, but you don't need to be. Uh, I just, I, I, I thought, I, I just didn't think that I was going to have what it took after being rejected, you know, a couple dozen mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. So... I just had a really badly calibrated view of my of my uh, my career in general at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when you try, because I did that too. I tried and got rejected a lot. I did eventually get an agent and get a contract, but it does give you a whole different perspective. And what I learned with indie and going indie is that New York and agents and editors often do not really understand what readers want. And you know, you may be rejected because you don't fit in their mold. But that doesn't mean that there aren't readers out there who like your stuff and there aren't, it doesn't mean that you're not a good writer. You know, mm-hmm. you may just be that they've already bought a book just exactly like yours. So they're not interested. So right. yeah, that's definitely information I, I wish I had sort of had in my head, although I, I wouldn't have believed it because yeah. I'm much more willing to believe that I've done something wrong than I've done something right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, here's one of our questions we like to ask. Um, have you ever made a mistake that turned out to be a good thing? Uh, a free wrench was a mistake mm-hmm. that my, my, my steampunk series uh, turned out to be a good thing. I, uh, I recommend people when they, when they want to know how to write a successful book, I tell them to learn the tropes of the genre. Mm-hmm. Like either you look like so we frequently recommend that you find a, a, a genre that you enjoy. That's also selling well, and that's, you know, mm-hmm. that's writing to yeah. market. Um, but alternately you can just, you know, whatever you feel like writing, just learn what people are expecting and make sure you're going to give it to them. And I thought I did that. With with uh, with free wrench uh, because free wrench is steampunk and steampunk is mostly an aesthetic. So it's like, well, it's got airships, it's got goggles, it's got corsets, it's got steam. That's <laughs> steampunk. It turns out steampunk is way more rigidly defined than that. And the, the very fact that my steampunk takes place in a secondary world instead of in Victorian England, which is where almost all of them take place, is enough for a lot of people to just say it's not steampunk. Uh, I haven't received emails telling me it's not steampunk because. Because it's you know a reasonably good story and it had a compelling cover and all that, a lot of people came in to read this. This is their first steampunk, so I'm sort of misrepresenting the entire <laughs> genre to a whole group of people. So, but it worked really well. It was uh, I, I say it's critically acclaimed. This was a, a book of the month on uh, iBooks when it released in Amazon in New Zealand, but it still counts. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's turned out to be probably my second best selling series. Like if you take them as a whole. So, yeah, I did not do it correctly, but it still worked out pretty well for me. Yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, a lot of times we think we know things and then we it uh, we realize how much we didn't know and, and didn't understand. Right, yeah. right. So much, so much. Um, so vice versa. So have you ever thought, of, I this is just the best thing I've ever done. This is going to be it. This is a home run. And then it turned out to not work out so well. Uh, yeah, the most recent book series, my, my most recent new book series was uh, Urban Fantasy. And I thought, like, I did the work. I thought it was going to be a hit. Uh, I did a bunch of, you know, I did a bunch of good ideas in the past few years, uh, absorbing from peers and stuff. I, I understood what it took to do a launch in a way that I didn't before I, you know, in my previous launches. So I did all the things I thought were the correct thing to do. I, I, I 
picked a series that I thought was really effective and I, and I sort of absorbed the tropes from that and, and, and mm-hmm. included them in it. I launched into KDP. I did a rapid release with three books. I set up an ad campaign at the very beginning and the series fell on its face. Uh, and mm-hmm. it fell on its face for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, it turns out the series that I chose, I actually talked about this in the podcast I just recorded. Mm-hmm. The series I chose for urban fantasy was uh, The Dresden Files, which is a very successful urban fantasy series, but it's not representative of the genre. It's mm-hmm. basically a subgenre in and of itself. And so people who were, were not looking for the urban fantasy that I wrote, and I also, because I had done wide previously, a huge number of my, uh, more than half of my audience is probably wide. And I wasn't launching into their, into that market. So I, I was trying to make sure they could at least get their hands in the book. I didn't want to abandon my old audience, which yeah. meant that I did a, uh, I did a launch in Story Bundle. I, I, I debuted in Story Bundle and I got, you know, a couple of hundred uh, for people who aren't familiar, Story Bundle is basically yes. a pay-what-you-want limited-time bundle service. Mm-hmm. So I, initi- I, I, I debuted in that, and I got a couple of hundred sales in that that were therefore not day one sales on Amazon. Like, I'm sure many of those people would have bought it on Amazon. They just wanted it early. And there, so I, I, I stole a bunch of launch mm-hmm. sales from myself. Mm-hmm. And in general, just I thought I did everything right. I put together a story I thought was great, and it has been by a huge margin, the least successful launch I've had in a long time. So it happens. Yeah, it does. It happens. So the Dresden Files, because it's got a male protagonist. I mean, so in most urban fantasies have a female. Is that one of the things that you feel found? That's one of the things. Uh, most urban fantasies tend to have a focus on, uh, on really well-established, uh, like, creatures like paranormal mm-hmm. creatures so you'll mm-hmm. usually have vampires or werewolves in an urban fantasy mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. mine is uh, uh these shadow creatures which are uh, things i made up or uh, mm-hmm. most like what i made up they're certainly not no one's out there searching for these creatures yeah uh yeah and and also even within even within the little subgenre i put together um harry dresden is, a, is basically a private eye and mm-hmm. I made a guy who's a photographer, and he gets involved in doing an investigation. Like, he's basically doing the work of, of a private eye, but he mm-hmm. isn't one. So I said, mm-hmm. just right next to the trope. Like, I, it's a habit of mine that I have to solve. <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort of a cozy. Yeah. I would say it does sound very much like maybe a cozier... <laughs> Uh, cozy amateur sleuth almost mystery yeah 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 I, I, i'm sure and that's another thing that, that I'm, I'm looking perhaps to do because I, I i plotted it for five books and it's only three because after the first one didn't do so well and therefore limited the capacity for the second and third one to do well yeah. and i had spent six months putting it together i was like um i don't like this series anymore i'm going to do something else <laughs> so i still have to write two more and i, I might do a, a rebrand and a relaunch uh mm-hmm. Because then once you have a fourth and fifth book out, you can make a bundle of the first three. There's yeah. there's ways forward with the series, but yeah. boy, oh boy, I thought it was a great idea and it was not. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for sharing that though, because yeah, I feel like I there's a lot of people it. that it's comforting to hear that, that, you know, sometimes you do check all the boxes and you do everything right and it just doesn't work. And it may be just the market. It may be the right, you know, like the way it's positioned, you know, but a lot of times we don't hear about the things that didn't go so well. So no, I'm more than willing to talk about the ridiculous, <laughs> silly things I do. The well, that's, thing is, I, mean, I like your attitude that, you know, you will, you're going to try different things with that series. I mean, you're not just going to give up on it because you've written it and it, it's still yours. At some point there may be just people clamoring for shadow creatures. I mean, you don't <laughs> yeah. know. So, yeah, some movie will come out and I'll be like, Hey, exactly. 
you look at that. Read my book. I've got some shadow pictures right here. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, you write a lot of short stories, so can you tell us about how um, how you think about short stories and plan them differently from your book? Uh, I do. Um, I, again, on on a recent podcast, I mentioned very briefly, but I don't like to throw anything away. Um, when I when I'm editing a book and I cut something out, I don't delete it. I move it over to a folder. Or when I have an idea that won't fit into a book, I don't I don't not I write that down and I put it in a folder. I call it the bad idea exercise or the bad idea <laughs> file. And the short stories are basically like orphaned ideas. Usually, they're like orphaned ideas that I just. The nice thing about a short story is that it can be basically all premise. Like you don't really, the plot of a short story can be super different. It just needs to be interesting for 5,000 words or, or 9,000 words. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll take it just a cool idea that just has to be interesting for the course of that idea and just blow it out. And, you know, you start in the middle, which is nice. Uh, and, and so you don't, you know, you, you, you can throw away a ton of setup and let people figure out. It tends out, it usually ends up being more of a mystery uh, just mm-hmm. because there's not a lot of context. But yeah, my, my process is usually I take a little a little nugget and instead of giving it a point A, point B, point C and, and a full plot, I'll just sort of have one really interesting event. Mm-hmm. Uh, occasionally what I'll do is I'll ask the fans like what character you want to learn more about. And so a lot of the short stories end up being like origin stories for characters. Mm-hmm. But in general, uh, instead of coming up with a plot that I really like, it's coming up with a premise I really like or coming up with a character I really like and just sort of having a study of that character for, you know, 10 pages. Okay. That's interesting because I always feel like a short story when I've tried to do them in the past, I haven't done many because it seems to take me almost as long to write a short story as like the first third of the novel. But I tried, like, I think I try and encapsulate, you know, the, the arc that you would get maybe in a novel into a short story. And that's just almost impossible yeah. in many ways. So, yeah, it'll be it'll have a very rushed plot of uh, pace yeah. that is, and it'll feel like very crowded. If but yeah, I so I usually try to like leave off the first act entirely and start with the second <laughs> act, and then you know end it off when you realize what the third act will be. Almost like that's way about about half of my stories end up being just basically a big act too. That is interesting. That is that is. So, what do you do with these short stories? I mean, do you sell them? Do you give them away? Do you use them on Patreon? Um, I mostly, I always use them on Patreon. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, mm-hmm. There's a few ways that I've used them. Like, I have a Patreon where uh, if you support me for at least a dollar, you get all the short stories I write. I, I release at least one a month. My 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 oh, coffers wow. are uh, currently empty, so <laughs> they'll be getting a question mark in a couple of days. But it, I, so far, I have you know over a year I haven't missed. Um, and then. When it comes to uh, giving away or selling them, if it grows out of control, which has happened three times, three of the short stories have ended up being 40,000 words, and that's not a short story. It's a novella, so I get a cover for it, and I get the edit, and I put it up for sale. Those are never big seller and big earners. Again, I tend to write long, and my audience expects it, so if I give them a 40,000-word thing, they're not usually not clamoring for it. Yeah. But I've already written it, and I've technically already made my money off of it because mm-hmm. it's in the Patreon. So it's just a little extra thing. And then what I did was after the first year, I had said right up front, I didn't want to lock things away in the Patreon forever. I don't really like paywalls. So um, I was like, one, you know, you'll all eventually get a chance to read this stuff. So after the first year, I took all of the, the stories that were not in a pre-existing series, and I made an anthology called Paradoxes and Dragons. Oh, and I made great. that available for sale, and that was about ninety thousand words, I think. Mm-hmm. And then I took all the ones that were available in, in, in that were part of a pre-existing series, and I called that side quests. Mm-hmm. And I made that a newsletter bundle, where like, uh, you know, if you sign up, you can get side quests. 
So everything is getting used two or three times at this point. Wow, that's great, though. Oh, that's it's really so smart. smart. Yeah. 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 Every time I hear people talking, like you talking about short stories and things like that, I think, oh, I need to write more of these because they do have a lot of possibilities, mm-hmm. you know, and I just feel like they take so much time for me mentally. So I need to figure that out, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it helps when you have, you know, uh, again, a file full of, you know, how about this? Like, oh, yeah. good idea. Me from four years ago, I'll do that. Yeah, yeah that's pretty cool. That's great, yeah. Well, you also commission a lot of art for your um, related to your books. So can you talk to us about that if someone's interested in doing that? Do you have any um, tips for them or any, um, you know, pitfalls to avoid? Sure. Um, pitfalls to avoid, I'll start with. Um, there's a, I'm trying to be more more diplomatic about this one. The the, uh, the phrase that I've used in the past was, uh, not all artists are flaky, but it's easy to find a flaky artist. Artists are incredibly high, are in incredibly high demand, and generally speaking, when they're taking individual commissions from someone, it's uh, in addition to a, a pre-existing workload. So um, you know, vet your artist for their capacity to complete your project. Uh, I have so far been extremely lucky. I think there's only three projects since I've started doing this that have not, you know, given me something. But occasionally you'll run into an artist who, for either because they just get overworked and they your stuff is lower priority, or because they realize uh, uh, to their dismay that they just can't complete the project. Usually they'll let you know and they'll refund the money. But occasionally they just sort of vanish from the internet. So do a little bit of work, like it, make sure that this artist has been reasonably reliable. And that's not hard to do. Uh, usually their uh, portfolio will be filled with things that are marked as commissions. And if you, okay. you know, you can go and see how those people, you know, what their experience was. Mm-hmm, yeah. But in terms of uh, like, how do I use them and how do you get them? Uh, I have started off, I just searched my cover artist. It was from DeviantArt. I just went on DeviantArt and I typed in epic fantasy and I found something I liked. And then I, you know, I hired him. And, and it's worked out very well for both of us. But uh, once you start working with artists frequently, you start to get a, a network of artists. Like they start recommending, oh, well, I'm not that good with this, but, but this mm-hmm. person is. So one piece of advice I give is uh, only, only ask an artist for something that they're comfortable doing because number one, it'll come out faster. Number two, it will come out better. And number three, uh, if, if you are asking them to do something they can't do, uh, they're going to know someone who can so it's just easier overall to to pick mm-hmm. something in the wheelhouse of your artist. Um, and for usage of it, I mean, I use art for, I mean, right now, if this was a video podcast, you'd see a background. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. And that background uh, uh, was art that I commissioned for covers. I was going to do a, a sci-fi serial, and I didn't want to have to pay for seven covers. So what I bought was three backgrounds, three foreground objects, and three characters. And I was just going mm-hmm. to composite new covers out of them. And so that cost about as much as one cover, but I could mix and match in, in, into you know however many covers that I chose. Mm-hmm. So uh, like the short stories, if you want, it, I mean, I'm doing it mostly because I like art, but if you want the art to be useful to you, then have a plan for the way that you can use it. And there's a thousand ways you can use art. Uh, yes, mm-hmm. covers, obviously. Um, but if you're, if you're active on social media, particularly on, uh, on Facebook, Facebook likes posts with art in it. But you posting an image is people are going to click on it more often and respond to it more often. So I had a bunch of uh, podcast headers made that feature my characters. And it's like, if I have a question, well, here's the one I use for when I have a question. If I have a sale, here's the one I use for when I have a sale. So just having art like that is good. Um, and also, it always gives you something to talk about. 
you can throw it into your like if you have nothing else to talk about during a, a you, it's time to send out a newsletter and you've got nothing else mm-hmm. to talk about well here's a some character art and how do you picture mm-hmm. this character so artwork right. uh, aside from just being a thing that i like and i would have been commissioning anyway because i want it to exist uh it's always there as like garnish for stuff that you're going to be doing anyway however i will say when it comes to things like advertising make sure you're allowed to uh, this is a pitfall that people yes. will fall into also mm-hmm. is uh, your art, your, your rights to the art that you commission are uh, occasionally limited. And one of the major limitations is editing. And that includes adding text to something. And another limitation might be putting it on merchandise. That's almost mm-hmm. always not included in the rights that you get when you commission something. So make sure that you, you find right. out if you're allowed to. Advertising another one, technically that's you know using your, your thing as a, as a product. Although if you're getting it as a cover, you are allowed to advertise because your cover is considered to be a promotional material and so is advertising. So. Mm-hmm. Ask, just talk to your artist and let them know. Usually you don't need a, a contract. Usually you're working with prices that aren't going to require a contract, but have an email thread that maintains what you're allowed to do. Yeah. Right. I just, um, <clears throat> I bought custom images for my last cover. It's the first time I've done that. And then I thought, oh, I can put the book cover on a t-shirt, but I didn't want to sell them because I don't have merch, but I did go to the photographer and cleared it with them. And I went to my cover artist and cleared it with her. And, you know, both of them were like, thanks for, you know, thanks. First of all, thanks for coming to us. And second of all, yeah. I mean, if it's for less than, you know, 10 or less things, sure. You can use it. But if you're going to start mass producing things and we have an issue, but so yeah, you just need to talk to them and, and ask, you know, what is and isn't okay because they still sort of own that, you know, and we bought it. Yeah. You have to pay it. You have to pay an enormous amount of money to get like full rights. And the reason they don't want to sell you full rights is because when you have full rights, it doesn't belong to them anymore. It can't even be in their portfolio half the time. Correct. So they're not going to give you full rights unless you explicitly ask for them. And then there's always an extra fee unless they're very new. If they're not a professional artist, sometimes you can effectively take advantage of them, which is a terrible thing to do. Don't do that. Horrible. <laughs> we do not I recommend that. Yeah. I would not I recommend taking advantage of artists. Yeah. You'll, you'll, you'll hurt. Like, even if you thought it was a great idea, you'll soon find you can't get artists to work with you because they yeah. talk to each other. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you're it's being an awful community. person, they're not going to work with yeah. you anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I commissioned some maps for one of my books. I, you know, because my covers tend to be not commissioned art, but I did some maps and same thing. You can, I could use them, you know, for promotion and in the books, but if I want to use them for anything else, she still owns the the rights, mm-hmm. which makes total sense. And I was going to say how smart to get several different, like the foreground background. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what was the other thing that you had? Commissioned? Character. The character. Yeah. And then you could kind of mix and match so that you wouldn't have the same, mm-hmm. you know, you could have some variety in your covers, but also unity. I've never yeah. heard of that. I think that's very, very smart to do. I also got them in grayscale so that I could do color tints, um, oh, which is more for the background than for the like the character. You're not going to have yeah. like a purple person unless they're purple. Yeah. But <laughs> right, exactly. Well, and I just heard uh, on the on y'all's podcast yesterday. It was Andrea was talking about she found some place where she got covers and she was able to get kind of the individual elements so that she could do all those things and so. And it was a pre-made cover, correct? 
Yeah, uh, pre-made covers are almost always, well, I think they call it composited, where it's mm-hmm. it's uh, individual, like, basically clip art, uh, not clip mm-hmm. art, but stock photos yeah, that have been yeah. modified and put together. Yeah. And uh, generally speaking, the artist is going to have available to them, and almost never available to you unless you ask for it, <laughs> a layered file that has all those individual elements uh, separated. So again, right. if you want one, ask for it, and it might it might cost yes. extra. Sometimes it doesn't. Like my my cover artist, I never ask for the layered version, but my cover artist, when asked for, will always give me the layered version. Yeah. Mine too, and I have asked, and so that's another thing because I I don't use pre made covers. I use you know covers. I have a cover artist, but you have to ask for those layered those mm-hmm. layered uh, composites because they they don't generally give them to you, but you can, and then you can use those in different ways. So that's really cool. Uh, They're they're particularly useful if you're uh, getting, if you did not initially ask for a, uh, an audiobook cover, because audiobook covers are a different shape than regular covers. And if you get the layered version, then you can move the text (laughs) because the text is very important. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. So in your bio, you describe how you move from the corporate world to a full-time writing. Uh, What do you wish you'd known about that transition or transition and any advice for someone considering the move? Um, my first thing I would say, uh, give yourself a huge buffer. Um, yeah. I, I am able to continue being an author right now. I'm, I'm in the midst of, because largely because of that failed enterprise uh, with the, the new series, I'm not earning nearly what I was four years ago. But I'm able to keep doing this because I stayed... At my job, I was making basically a full-time, in- oh, I was making a full-time income for my job, obviously. And then uh, for about a year and a half, I was making way more. I was, the, the money that I was making from my job was enough to pay the taxes on the money I was making from my books. Like I, mm. I had a much more successful book career, but I stayed working for a couple of years so that I could bank as much of it as possible. And I, uh, and I would definitely recommend that. I, I You will be, uh, if, if you start seeing really good sales, you will be tempted to jump in and try to make the most of that immediately. And that can definitely work for you. Mm-hmm. But I have, have yourself in a situation where you have put together for the inevitable doldrums. And just even if um, like I, I paid off student loans, I made sure I had zero debt and I got the pound down payment on a house and I started and a, a retirement thing, mm-hmm. get yourself ready so that uh, when the time comes, you can weather things much more easily um, when your income goes down because your costs go down because you don't have debt anymore. Yeah. That's so just be prepared is one piece of re- uh, re- recommendation I would have. And, uh, uh, in my case, like I say, in the, in the thing, I, I was offered the opportunity to get a, a raise and the raise would have given me $25,000 a year more and doubled my workload. And I wouldn't mm-hmm. have been able to write anymore. Mm-hmm. And, um, if that hadn't come along, there's a very good chance I would still be writing and working. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a hard road when you become a, f- a full-time author. It's very uncertain. Mm-hmm. And you need to be aw- uh, aware of that. And you need to know if that's the sort of thing you can handle. Because I wouldn't have thought I could handle it. I apparently can because I quit, you know, many years ago. But, yeah, I would definitely say uh, uh, do your research. If you're listening to a podcast like this, then you're doing your research. But uh, be, be, be certain uh, that you're, when you step out onto that shaky raft that you're going to be able to get through some rapids when the time comes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other than that, um, just if you're going to quit your job and go full time, have something. I, this is something I wish I had done and it, it didn't really make a difference, but uh, have a thing that is like your big debut when you, when you quit your job and go full time. 
Um, it, it feels scummy, but everything that you do as an author is a potential to help you promote. So, uh, you know, big celebration. Hey, I quit my job. And to celebrate, oh. here's this book. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? It's a major right. event in your life and, and yeah. it feels big to you and you can make it feel big to your audience. So if like I had sort of started a new series at that same time, uh, I was already starting a new chapter in my life. Here's a new chapter in my career. Uh, just sort of treat it like it was a business decision because it is a business decision. Yeah. yeah launch yourself sort of yeah. as you, yeah. And I, I know that there would be people who would be like, Oh, I want to support this person. Cause I, you know, I enjoy their books. So I'm definitely buying this new book because they're transitioning yeah. into this new, yeah. new phase. I think that's really smart. Good advice. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people, you know, that going full time is the Holy grail. I mean, we all think that's, that's the goal. And sometimes it's not as great as we thought it would be. I mean, for me, it's great, but there are days that I wish that I was still around people and working because <laughs> I need that interaction. But I think if you look at your job the way you did, where it's, a, it's sort of a means to an end, it's you're using that full-time job to get you to a place where you could go full-time it changes your attitude about the job because it's easy to get this I hate my job I want to write full-time attitude but if you, you can switch the perspective and say this job is allowing me to get to a point where I can write full-time it makes well it just makes life better it makes you a lot less you know unhappy I think sometimes yeah, uh, there's a phrase I, I heard on Dirty Jobs. It's not from Dirty Jobs, but uh, <laughs> when your avocation becomes your vocation, you get no vacation. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, like if you if you if you do what you love, they say you're not going to work a day in your life. You're never going to stop working because when you're exactly. finished, when you're finished doing your job, you continue doing your job because it's also your hobby. <laughs> and even if you're trying to sleep, you're still thinking about your hobby yeah. slash job that you do. <laughs> exactly. I tell people being an author is like assigning yourself homework for the rest of your life. Yeah. And, you know, you really kind of have to like homework, which I didn't always. So I have, it's, you know, you have to work on that attitude a lot of the time. Or I do. Anyway, I'm mm -hmm. sure a lot of people don't, but I do. So. Well, what's the best thing you've done to set yourself up for success in your author career? Um, I, getting organized was a super uh, important thing. Yeah. Um, like, I, you need to have a plan. Uh, early on, I was just like, what do I want to write next? And then I wrote that. <laughs> and like, you really ought to know, uh, uh, <laughs> here's a couple of things you can do. Just take a look at the date you're supposed to release a book and see if that's a good idea. Because uh, <laughs> like I have my, my release schedule prior to, to uh, you know, being more intelligent was I would write a book and when I was done, I'd put it up for pre-order and I would pre-order for an arbitrarily long amount of time and release on a day that I thought made sense. And once that day was uh, April Fool's Day, and it was a book that was very different from anything I'd ever written before, and it had a cover that was very different from any of my previous covers. And so when I announced it, no one thought it was a real book. And that was not a good launch. You don't want to start off trying to convince people it's a real product. And I also released a book uh, on Election Day in 2016, and that was a distracting oh, day. Yeah. I didn't even think about it. I, I, I set that, that, uh, that date up 
you know, three months prior. And I was just like, oh, right. some day. And, and I don't want to do it during holiday season. Holiday season is a really hard time to launch a book. I'll do it, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. In November, November 6th or something like that. Right. So, uh, yeah, just plan. I think the main yeah. thing I just said in plan, like outlining is planning. And, uh, and having, you know, setting up promos beforehand is planning, just have, uh, planning for success, planning for failure, just set yourself up, get yourself organized and have a plan. All right. Very good. Very good. So tell people where they can find you, Joe. Uh, I am Joseph R. Lalo, and I'm pretty much the only one. Uh, there's a there's a saxophone player in in, uh, in Australia who's also Joseph Lalo, but I'm ahead of him in the search now. So, Excellent. Uh, if you search for Joseph R. Lalo, you will find me. Uh, I am also my website is bookofdeacon.com. Another mistake, by the way, you choose an author thing based on your name, not on the series, because. <laughs> <laughs> but bookofdeacon.com is where you'll find me. And uh, on social media, almost all social media, I'm Joseph, uh, I'm sorry, J-R-L-A-L-L-O. Uh, that's, you know, Twitter and all that. Yep. And also I am the co-host of Six Figure Authors with the number six, sixfigureauthors.com. And mm-hmm. you'll, you can find Lindsay, Andrea, and I have a, have a podcast all about marketing and, and, and being an author. And it's awesome. Yes. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. Yes, so mine good. too. I listen every week and highly recommend that as well as the previous one, the science fiction and fantasy marketing podcast. Uh, yep. I had great guests on that as well. I love that podcast. And I don't, you know, I write romantic comedy, but I listened every week to the science fiction and marketing, you know, marketing yes. podcast because you just had such great information. Yeah. Thank you very much. You guys do a great job. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks guys for being with us today. We'll have all the links in the show notes at uh, wish I'd known for writers.com and we'll see you next week. Bye. Everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast. We hope this episode inspired you, empowered you, and made you laugh a little bit too. If you loved it, tell your friends about it. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review. We look forward to being with you again next week.